Well, um, it is a thrill. My name is Jose, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet. We are in packing mode at the Zayas clan. Uh, we've been in our house for about uh, five years and just been looking for a space in our neighborhood that can host a few more people, a little bit of a, we don't have a backyard, we have a patch of grass, you know. So in the three days where the weather is nice, we really can't have anyone over because we won't all fit. But uh, we finally found a spot, Craigslist, way to go. Gotta love Craigslist. Anyway, we found a spot. And so the only problem is we have to move in like within a few days. So 10 days from now, we're moving. And after a year of comparing, I think we found a spot. My wife and I, we're uh, native New Yorkers. So they, it's got a backyard that could actually fit people. That was like qualifier. Don't, don't change the schools for the kids. That was another qualifier. And it has a brick oven pizza out in the backyard, like a, a brick oven, like pizza oven, which we're both native New Yorkers. To have your own like pizza place, you don't care. But this is a big deal. All right. Go ducks, go beeves, go whatever. Anyway, whatever gets you excited, it got us excited. And so, but, um, but it's funny because you start to realize the differences, like what, was, what fits in this house versus that house. And we're comparing what will stay, what will go. And isn't that the way life is? I mean, the American dream is that we have what we have, but we always want what someone else has. So now we finally have a brick of it in the backyard, you know. But we all compare. It's just part of life. If you've got a car, you, you drive by or walk by someone else's car and you, you compare. You walked in and you've got a nice outfit, but you look at someone else's outfit or shoes or whatever it is that gets you all excited and we can't help but, but compare. You know, you go and you look at someone's hairline and you realize, wow, it's like they have hair. And you compare. Actually, that's just me. Anyway, side note, I look at Diego. I'm like, look at that thick Mexican full hair and... I got nothing. I got crickets, man. You know, we compare. And you know, for the most part, it's okay. You have this and you think about that and it's okay. But sometimes, would you agree that it could get unhealthy? Me taking what I have and but projecting and looking at what you have or what someone else has, it could become an unhealthy thing. And uh, we're in this series in the Psalms and this week and the next two weeks, it's going to kind of get hyper-practical because the Psalms are more than a random collection of ancient Hebrew songs. It's, it's a, a teaching tool that God's given us as Jesus followers. And when you read the Psalms, even though they're short and they're quasi-poetic, so some of it's mysterious, they're meant to teach us. And tonight, we're going to be looking at Psalm 90. So if, if you have your Bible, go to Psalm 90. And we want to think about when we look at our lives and we our, our bent nature is to compare, what do we do when we're tempted to look at what someone else has or someone else's life or someone else's marriage or someone else's whatever and we find ourselves like, man, I wish I was. I wish I had. What do we do when we're tempted to compare? Psalm 90 is going to help us. But before we read Psalm 90, just a little bit of a step back. Some of you are maybe new to the church or you're just visiting this weekend. How do the Psalms work? I want to recap it real quick. The Psalms are one story. It's not random. They're one story expressed through 150 poems. So when we read it, they're meant actually to be read from one to 150. I never thought about that before. But we've been tracking each week and finding that they build on each other. So even though they're independent, you could read Psalm 74 or Psalm 127. There is a greater meaning when you read it in order. Uh, and, and the Psalms, even though it's one book, it's actually broken up into five books. We saw that 
early on. There are five sections. And if you look at Psalm 90, just look at your Bible for a moment. What book number does it say above it? Uh, almost five. It's four. <laughs> well done, Gita. Four. It's book four. Now, why are they set in books? Uh, we saw that, that books one and two were about King David. King David and the crisis, the trouble. The guy is always in trouble. And so early on, the Psalms are about conflict and David's struggling because he's God's king. He's God's man. These are God's people. But he's facing all sorts of opposition. And isn't that like life, right? You choose to follow Jesus, what's going to happen? Psalms book one and two, so the first 72 Psalms, are all about the struggles you and I are going to face when we choose to follow Jesus. Well, book three, that third section, Psalm 73 to 89, is all about more than crisis, uh, more than conflict. It's about crisis. It goes worse. If you read in the last couple of weeks, if you're doing our reading together, you read that, that they're full of lament, full of sorrow, full of heartache. It seems like it's gone south. And what we believe, we think that Psalm 73 to 89 are written at the time when Israel has no king. Because uh, of disobedience, if you've read the Bible, you know the story. God gave them land, they disobeyed. They dishonored God, they, they worshiped false gods, they went against the scriptures. And God warned them, warned them, warned them, if you don't change, I'm gonna have to remove you and teach you that when you don't follow me, it does not go well. And that happened. And, and Israel lost their king, they lost their land. And so we think that Psalms 73 to 89 are written at the lowest point in Israel's story. Point being, in the life of following Jesus, you may go through books one and two, so to speak. You follow him, but you, you hit struggle. And there are seasons where you may hit book three, so to speak, where you hit your lowest low. What do you do when your life seems like lament after lament after lament. We talked about laments, Steve did, last week. Well, as we're getting ready towards Psalm 90, and here's the reason for the background, is Psalm 90 is a bridge that turns the page of the story. And Psalms 86, Psalms 85, 86, 88, and 89 are all lament. They're struggling, wondering, God, where are you? God, if, you're, if we're your people, how come we're out of the land? How come we have no king? And those psalms are meant to remind us that we can talk to God when we feel like we're in the pit. And so when you hit your season of struggle and heartache and it seems like God is gone, that is the greatest time not to abandon your faith in God, but to reach out. And it's okay like we learned last week. It's okay to cry out. You can be fully honest. You can express your full range of emotions to God. He's not pushing us away and asking us to just man up or woman up, which sounds kind of weird, but like, you know, and, and, and come to him as if everything's okay. No, you come to God the way you are and God is willing to receive you with what you're going through because he already knows it. Now, before we read Psalm 90, I want to read the setup of Psalm 89. So look at Psalm 89. Keep your finger on 90. We'll be there in a second. But this is how it goes. This is the setup. Psalm 89.3 says, uh, you said, speaking about God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I'll establish your line forever and will make your throne firm through all generations. The setup for Psalm 90 is the people are crying out to God, God, you said, God, you promised 
that you would raise up a king, David, and he would have descendants. And, and we as a people would always have someone who stands in your place that we can see that will lead us in your ways. Because the king was more than just a human ruler. The king was the person who heard from God. And the king got direction from God. And the king led the people in the ways of God. And they're crying out because they feel like, God, you've left us abandoned. You said you'll establish your rule over us forever. Now, now, what is their reality? They're crying out to God with, you said, you promised, but look down at verse 38 of Psalm 89. It says, you've rejected. You have spurned. You've been very angry with your anointed one. You've renounced the covenant of your servant and have defiled the crown in the dust. So there's no more king, is what he's saying. There, there's no more king in the land, but you promised that you would be with us. Jump down to verse 46. How long, Lord, Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how fleeting is my life. For what futility you've created all humanity. Who can live and not see death? Who can escape the great power of the grave? Grave, verse 49 is key. Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Lord, We've experienced your presence. Lord, you've been our guide. Lord, you've been following. Lord, where are you? Remember, remember, remember your former love. And as we read Psalm 90, we've got to read it with the lenses as, as if this is us. You and I, we choose to follow Jesus. We go through conflict, struggle. We hit a crisis. We hit a fork in the road. You, you hear some news you never thought you'd hear. You pray for this and you get that. You put your hope in a relationship you put your hope in a job. You put your hope in an educational degree. You put your hope in whatever, and you find that it's not turned out the way you expected. What do you do, right? You cry out to God, God, you, you said, but what I'm experiencing is unlike what you said. What do we do? And then we turn the page. Book four is all about our response. When we hit that spot where we don't know what to do, and it seems like God's been unfaithful, and we cry out to him, Psalm 89, a lament, pouring out your soul. What we're going to read in Psalm 90 is the right response. There's some questions that we should ask when we think about where we are in line and in light of what God has done and what we're experiencing right now. There are four questions that we can ask that can begin to guide our response. How are you and I supposed to respond when life doesn't measure up to what we think God is supposed to do in our world. And this isn't like theory. Every one of us, maybe you're asking it right now, but at some point in your following Jesus, you're gonna find yourself asking God why. And God, what's going on? And God, how do I get out of this mess? Uh, look at what the psalmist is gonna guide us. Psalm 90 turns the page and is actually the answer to the question in Psalm 89, verse 49, Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? God, why are you not faithful? Then the psalmist turns, and let's just read it together. Four questions I'm going to ask you to write down as you think through your own struggles. And they may not make, may not make sense now. And maybe for a month from now, a year from now, Write down this first question. Book four is about the, uh, Moses, the man of God. Let's read it. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. 
Now this is interesting. Before we read verse 1, we get this, what's called superscription, this little descriptor. Most of the Psalms are about King David. How many Psalms are about Moses? How many? One. This should tell us something. Okay. A prayer of Moses. God, what happened to your faithfulness that we saw as you had in your servant David? Psalm 89. And now the answer is, how do you and I respond when it seems like God isn't faithful? A prayer. The psalmist turns us and says, what do we do when we don't know what to do? We pray. Who do we pray like? A prayer of Moses, the man of God. There's no greater figure in the Hebrew story of someone who's written scripture than Moses. Moses is the one who gives us the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Moses is this great person who heard from God uh, by the burning bush, you know, Exodus 3, and who walks with God. And God uses Moses to deliver the people. Israel is in slavery in Egypt, and Moses is used by God to deliver the people and bring them to the land. So what do I do when it seems like God is far off? They're asking God, you've been faithful to David. How come there's no king like David? The answer is, you cry out to God and you look way back. So the, the writer says, let's not look to David. Let's look way back and let's look at Moses, the man of God. Did Moses write Psalm 90? We don't know. But whether it was Moses who wrote it or it's written about Moses, we know that the, the author is going to point us back. When you're in your struggle, don't look to where God was two weeks ago. Look way back. Look way back before your own life. Now, what does that mean? Look at verse one. Let's get into it. First question that we need to ask ourselves, who is God? When you're going through your struggle, who is God? Verse one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When you're thinking about what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What, what's my next play? I don't know what road to take. I'm at a fork and I don't know whether to go left or right. Think about for a moment before you make those decisions or you give up on God. Ask the question, who is God? A prayer of Moses, the man of God. The writer, as he's thinking, he looks back not just to 100 years, but to thousands of years, because when the psalm is written, Moses was probably long since dead, in my opinion, probably for more than a thousand years. And he looks back, says, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place, our place to live throughout all generations. Before their mountains were born, he looks back to creation. He says, where, where is God in all this? God is the one who made the very mountains. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you know, sometimes when I, when I hit my struggle or I don't know what to do or I'm unsure about things, we start with ourselves, don't we? We, we get so caught up in, I'm in this house, but we're looking for another house. Or again, whatever it is that you're going through right now. And I got caught up in the stuff. I get caught up in my own view. How am I going to do it? How am I going to make it? How is this going to happen? And, and really, if you want to walk with God and walk through your struggles and, and come out at the end with joy, we need to start with the right questions. And your answer to that question, who is God, will shape everything about you. What does the author say? He says, Lord, so it's not God like some distant. 
He, he sees God as ever-present. Lord, Master, like King, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. He realizes that God has been involved with people well before he came into the struggle. And it's great to remind yourself that when you've hit a tough spot, that God has been there in the lives of people, not just your own world, but the lives of people before you. And you and I can find great hope when we remember that God is the one who made the mountains. God is the one who made the oceans. God is the one who set this universe in motion. And when I have a small view of God, my problems seem huge. But if I will allow myself to enlarge my view of who God is, it puts my very real problems in perspective. Who is God? Uh, God is the place to start. And he sees that from the beginning, from everlasting to everlasting. So he looks back. And when I think about what I'm going through right now, I have to remind myself that I am not the center of the story and I'm not the beginning of the story, but that God is the one who shaped the universe and he's made me. And if he's made me and he's been at work in the lives of people before me, I can put my hope that if God can shape Mount Hood and Mount Rainier, if God can carve out the coastal range and make it as beautiful that when we go there, we're in awe. Or if you don't go there, just look at Instagram and follow Diego. He's there all the time. And... And if you just, when you see a beautiful picture, when you see Multnomah Falls, when you see all the beauty that's out there, we need to remember, if God can take care of that, what can he do for my situation? First question I need to answer is, who is God? Second question is, what has God done? Uh, it's not only one thing to say that God created the heavens, but what has he done? Look at verse 3. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to the dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. When you think of time, what has God done? God has created time. And for us, it seems like our struggle is never ending. But whatever's going on, a thousand years in your sight are like a day. I feel like some of my struggles have been going on and on and on. But you see time, we're caught up in time, 24 hours in a day, seven uh, days in a week, 30 or 31 days in a month, except February, which always throws us off. 28, 29, we don't know. Like, you know, but time, God is beyond it. God has created a beginning and an end. There's a beginning of the universe. There will be an end of the universe. There's a beginning of your life. There's an ending of your life. Look at verse five. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up, but by evening it is dried up and withered. We look at God and we look at what God has done. There's beginning, there's end. He's, he's created the universe, that's great, but he's brought people to life. You look at your family tree, you look at your ancestors, if you've got pictures or there's anything written about your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. Seasons come, people come, people go, you're here, but you're not going to be here forever. Depressing Sunday night thought, right? But look, we're talking about struggles, we're talking about crisis. What do we do when we hit the wall? We remember who God is. God is the author of everything and what God has done. God has created seasons. And like for him, our long struggle, our thousand years are like a blip in his sight. God's above 
your hard season. And God brings people to life, but, but like the grass that grows up and is quickly gone away, we start in dust. Remember Genesis, when God creates man, he creates him from the dust of the ground and from the dust we return. God is there before we're there and God is there after we're there. Let's not forget that the God that we serve is a great God who's done great things. And as God has been faithful to Moses, who lived well before this people, and David, and God was faithful in his son Jesus, and God is faithful to the early disciples, and God's faithful throughout the history of the church. When you remember God's faithfulness and what he's done in the past, that becomes the canvas. It becomes a landscape that, that you can see your real problem, my real problems, my struggles, my shortcomings, in light of what God, who God is and what God has done. So who, am, who is God and what has he done? Third question is, who am I? Look at verse seven. Who am I? We are consumed by your anger. By the way, verses seven to 12, he's gonna flip from thinking about God to talking about his own life. We're consumed by your anger. We're terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years. How many years are you going to get? How many years are you going to get in this life? He uses like the, the span of like a generation. Our days may come to 70 years. Or 80 if you have your vitamins, if your strength endures, like whatever, you exercise. You may get 80 years. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. They quickly pass away and we fly away. Metaphor for life is over. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is, due, uh, that is your due. Teach us, verse 12, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What, is the, what does the psalmist do? First, he starts with God. And when you look at your challenges, you start with who, who is God? Who is God? And he's greater than my challenges. He's greater than my struggles. If I see what God has done, and where do you know what God has done? Mostly for us, you can look at the mountains, Mount Hood or Rainier or whatever, and see God's handiwork. But if you want to know what God is like, you look at the pages of Scripture. Immerse your life when you're in a struggle, in a pit, when you feel like you don't know what to do. Turn to the pages of Scripture because God has revealed himself as he's interacted with people well before us. And when I see God in the past, who is God and what God has done, then I get to see myself for who I really am. So the psalmist spends some time and says, okay, God is great and God is big. What am I? I get 70 years. Maybe I get 80. And you know what? When he looks at his life, he's, he's, not, he's not delusional about who he really is. Look at, it, look at verse 8. You've set our iniquities before you. He sees his mess ups. So before he points the finger at God and blames God for his own mess, he looks at himself. Our secret sins, middle of verse 8, in the light of your presence. So before I, I, I push God away, I look at my own life. Who is God? What has God done? But then who am I? And, and if we want to have a rightful attitude while we're struggling and we're going through tough situations, I take account for what's mine. Uh, some of the things that we're facing, let's just be honest, is because I've done it. Some of the things I'm facing, challenges, struggles, whatever, it's because of my own attitude. It's because my sin. It's because I haven't sought wisdom. So he comes to a rightful assessment and says, teach us, teach me, 
to number my days so that I may gain a heart of wisdom. So something shifted. In light of who God is, in light of what God has done, he's not pointing the finger. Remember Psalm 89? Lord, where are you? Where is the former love that you gave to David? God, why, why, why? But then he sees God for who he is and he sees God for what he's done and he sees himself and we see ourselves and we say, now wait a minute, okay, God, I want, I want my life and my situation to change but my sins before you and my, my, my iniquity, it's seen by you. And you know what? I'm not all that powerful. I, I only get 70 years. I get 80 if I'm lucky. God, I'm frail. God, I'm weak. And when we humble ourselves before God and say, God, um, instead of trying to answer all my problems and trying to man up or, 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 or take care of it, which is our bent, we usually want to fix it, fix it, fix it. When I say, God, I'm frail and I'm weak and I need you, and I humbly say, teach me. Struggle and challenge is some of the greatest blessing you'll ever experience. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it at the time, but if you look back at your life, when are the greatest periods of growth in your relationship to Jesus? Is it when everything's okay or when you don't know what to do? Which is it? For me, it's when, when I don't know what to do. So God allows us to go through seasons of struggle so that we'll get to a place where we'll see him for who he is and what he's done and we'll honor him as God and we'll humble ourselves and say, God, I am but dust and I'm going to return to the dust and I thought I was strong enough to make it and I thought I was powerful enough to do it and I thought I could resist, but I couldn't. And now here I am. Teach me to number my days. I need a heart of wisdom. God, use this situation to teach me. And that's what the psalmist does. And what happens when we cry out, God, I see you for who you are. I see you for what you've done. I see myself for who I am. Finally and lastly, I can ask God for help. And that's what he does. What do I do? When you're in a crisis, you don't want to know. What, what do you do? Now, guys, we are usually bent on fixing it. Here a problem. What must I do? I must fix it. But before we fix our situation, we need to turn to God first, see him for who he is, see him for what he's done. And then I evaluate my own life. I come to God and say, God, there may be some things I need to confess. I haven't been wise. I haven't, been, uh, I haven't gone to the scriptures. I need your help. And then I come to God and say, God, fix it. And that's, that's where the psalmist ends. Verse 13. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? He cries to God honestly. God. Now that I know that my time is short, will you help me relent, hold back? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and may be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many as days that you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. So, so whatever this guy is going through, whatever this people are going through, it's been a long time coming. And so after a long, hard season, they're crying, God, relent. God, have compassion. God, satisfy. God, make us glad. They want their situation to change. So it's okay to cry to God, God, get me out of this. God, I am here, and I've been comparing myself with everyone else's circumstance, and I want it to change. God, after I see him for who he is, see him for what he's done, as I look at my own life and see where I need God's wisdom, God to teach me, God to change me, I own up for what is mine. Then I cry out and say, God, I want things to change, and I ask him to do it. 
of verse 16. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendor to their children. God, as I look to the future, I'm asking that those who come after me will experience your blessing and not the struggle that I've been going through. And so like we learned from the laments, it's okay to cry out to God, God, get me out of this. It's okay to cry out to God, God, I want to see it change. What does he ask for? Verse 17 summarizes it. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us, establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Now, in the Psalms, Psalms don't rhyme like most songs today. Most pop songs you hear on the radio, they use in a song rhyme to make it fit. That's not how Hebrew poetry works. But if you see a repeated line, you can highlight it. The, the authors of the Psalms, Hebrew poetry works on repetition. So whenever you see in a, in a psalm a couple of lines repeated, it's supposed to stick out. So at the end, I see God. Who is God? And what has God done? I see myself for who I am. And then he repeats these lines. What does he repeat? Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God, I want my future to be different than my current circumstance. And I need your help to establish. Because for them... They're far from God's land. They don't have a king. They don't have a temple. Life is a mess. What they need is for God to step in and reshape their circumstance. And what do we really need when we're in our struggle? We don't need ourselves to change the situation. We need God to step in and do it for us. And so he asked at the beginning of verse 17, may the favor of our Lord rest on us. We need God's favor. No matter what you and I are going through, what's going to make the difference? Sometimes God will use another person to come in and bring relief and change the circumstance. That's great. Sometimes you'll see his hand directly. For most, it's a combination of the two. But really, he's asking, God, I need your favor. I need your presence. The word favor in Hebrew is noam. It could be translated, God, I need your delightfulness. I need your pleasantness. The New Living Translation translates it well. I need your approval on my life. So sometimes as I'm praying, God, relent. God, change things. God, show favor. God, I, I, I want my future to be glad. What he's really saying is, God, if you bring your pleasantness, if you bring your approval, if you bring your presence over my life, that is what I need more than anything else. And when you and I come to God and say, God, will you step in it's really asking the prayer of Psalm 90, verse 17. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And that's why I think this is like the Psalm of Moses. Because if you read back in Exodus, and the story of Moses is an ordinary guy who is plucked out and chosen by God to do something that's well beyond him. Uh, if you know the story of the Bible, Moses has murdered someone. He's raised in Egypt and God selected him not to be killed like the other Hebrew boys. But he's, he's raised in Pharaoh's household and he steps in and he murders another man and Pharaoh sees it and he has to run and hide and he feels like his life is over. He thought he was going to be used by God to deliver the people but because of his own um, quick thinking and stepping ahead of God's plan, he makes a mess of things. And he's far from Egypt and he feels alone but God shows himself to Moses. 
and establishes the work of his hands. God calls Moses, Moses, I'm going to use you. Even with your past, even with your mistakes, I'm going to use you. And Moses is like, God, you got the wrong guy. And when God comes to Moses, Moses answers, Lord, I don't want to go. I'm slow of speech. I don't know what to do. But, but God promises him, I will be with you. And go. And he gives him a staff says, this will be a sign to show everyone my power and my presence is with you. What Moses needed was God's favor. May the favor of the Lord rest on us. And you know that when M Moses goes back to Egypt, God's presence, his pleasantness is with Moses. And things begin to change in the history of the people of God in Israel. And they're removed out of Egypt and brought to their own land because God steps in and changes the circumstance for Moses. But you know the story. When God gets them out of Egypt, do they always follow Moses? Do the people always follow Moses? Yes or no? No way. And he goes through seasons for 40 years of ups and downs. And it seems like God's close. Then it seems like God is far off. And at some point, Moses is convinced that God's going to destroy these people. They're so rebellious. But Moses steps in and prays for the people and says, God, relent. God, don't destroy these people. What are the other nations going to think? These are your people. And you know Moses is used in this humble way, but in a sense to change the mind of God. This is amazing. God is going to judge the people to the point where they're going to be gone. But Moses intercedes and steps in. And out of his cry out to God, God, no, 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 no. God does relent and he saves the people. So Moses is a, this is a psalm of Moses, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Because if you look at his life, his life in very many ways can be like ours. All of us are called by God in some way to do something for his own name. All of us at times feel inadequate. All of us stumble and fall. Moses had his challenges. He didn't fully obey. As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible, you realize that he doesn't even enter into the land because of his own personal disobedience. But in our struggle and in our challenge, God is there. And so Moses, and like us, in the Psalms, we can pray, God, we need your favor to rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. And if we will cry out like Moses, like David, like people who come before us, you can find that this season or this struggle that you're going through, it will not be the end of you. I'm here to encourage you tonight that Psalm 90 is a pivot point. It's been dark, and if you've been reading through the Psalms, there's been a lot of heartache. But what we're going to see from Psalm 90 is the right response is to not give up on God. In the middle of your struggle, in the middle of your challenge, in the middle of your heartache, never give up on God. God will be faithful. He's creator. He made it all. He knows it all. And his character is always in line. So God is love and he will be loving to you. And God is just and he will be just towards you. And God's merciful and God will be merciful towards you. I'm here to encourage you. Don't give up in the middle of your struggle. But like Moses, hang on. And over time you will see that God will establish the work of your hands. Uh, when I read this passage, I think about our own story as a community. We're just about two and a half, three years old, and how much has changed. You know when you start out, whether it's your, a relationship with, you know, what you hope will be your spouse someday, or now you're your spouse. Now when you start a relationship, you don't know where things are going to turn. And when we started the church a couple years ago, it was really, when I was asked to be a part of the leadership, it was, it was really simple. 
Uh, it was called Solid Rock, right? You remember back in the day? Solid Rock West Side and Solid Rock Sunset. And it was like, Jose, we want you to be part of the leadership team and mostly to teach. And we're centralized as a church. And so most of the decisions, most of the heavy lifting will be done centrally. So Jose, we want to free you up so that you'll be freed up to preach and travel and do what you're called to do as an evangelist and also be part of the church because most of the hard work is going to be done by a leadership team. Well, those of you who've been a part of the church know that our story has changed. Oh, there's been shifting here and there, all for the good. And in the last three years since we kind of started, more and more we've been, been convinced and convicted that most of what happens should be happening at a local level. So I started off, and my role, my job, was to be mostly teaching and kind of share the vision of the centralized team with you as a church. And that's changed. It's had a twist and a turn. And for, on Sundays, you don't really see it much. But when you're behind the scenes as we're organizing, the decisions were, that were made by really experienced, skilled people who have been doing this for a long time have now been pushed to the local level. Basically, I've been asked to do a lot of things that I don't know how to do. And so my story has changed. Now, what do you do when life throws you a turn? Now, I'm not here to complain, but I get and understand what it's like to be going in one direction and to be shifted in another. And so like Moses, which I am totally not like Moses, so I'm not bringing a parallel there, but like God called him to do something, and then it had its twists and turns. So I can experience in my own calling to be a part of this community, it's had its twists and turns. And at times it's been really hard because I've been put in circumstances where I've been asked to make decisions where I don't have the experience and I don't know exactly what to do and it seems really hard and sometimes decisions you make as a leader are going to hurt some people and offend other people and, and what do you do? All of this is new for me and I didn't expect it. And, and like Moses when I started the journey, I only knew a little bit. And isn't that the story of God? Jesus calls you to follow him and he doesn't tell you anything else. That's it. Follow me. And as you follow him, some of the things that you hoped would happen, happen. Some of the things that you didn't expect come your way. And so in the, the last couple of years, trying to figure it out, my wife, who I love uh, so much, she's my sounding board, so she, so she hears everything. And sometimes I found myself complaining. I've got the best job in the universe, in my opinion. Maybe you like yours. I love mine. But at times it's really hard and I find myself moaning or complaining or wondering and worrying and filled with doubt and unbelief. And then I read Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And it's when I get my eyes back on God and off of myself that I find hope coming. Now, where are we as a community? We're in a great spot. And I realize now that the decisions made as a leadership team to, to localize things are better. And you know what I'm experiencing? Some of the things that I thought I won't know how to do when I'm thrown in the situation with God's help, I'm finding myself having wisdom I didn't have. And God's giving me insight that I, that I didn't have in the past. And so as you and I face our crises, our challenges, Put your hope back in God. Turn your eyes off of the circumstance and back on God. And you will find that the God who has been faithful, he'll be faithful to you. And so our story isn't one of a straight line. There's been twists and turns and all sorts of things I haven't expected. But it's been harder, but better. Better because I've seen God. 
I've seen God in ways that I wouldn't have imagined. And if God didn't bring me through some of these struggles and trying to learn how to lead a community, which just is brand new for me, I've been experiencing God's presence and I've been seeing God's wisdom come slowly by slowly and the same will happen for you. Your story is a little different. Your circumstance is a little different. But if God can lead me through the last three years to figure out how to do what he's called me to do, that he will lead you through. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. So God, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Tonight, consider who is God? Who is God to you? Consider what has God done? What has God done for you before before you turn your back or you follow into unbelief or worry or complain, maybe take the time tonight, this week, to consider all God has already done for you. Then ask yourself, who am I? Before we push the responsibility back to God, let's consider what needs to change in our own world. What attitude needs to change in me? What sin needs to be confessed? What, what have I done to get myself in this spot? And then and only then, let's cry out to God and say, God, relent. God, bring blessing. God, establish your favor. And like Moses and like David and like everyone who's come before us, we will see the faithfulness of God in our world. So in response tonight, let me ask you the all-important question. In what part of your life or where do you need God's favor? Where do you need God's pleasantness, God's love, God's mercy, uh, God's favor in your life. Tonight, let's bring that to him. Let's be honest. Like the laments we learned last week, we can come to God with everything. Where do you need God's favor? Let's start there. And in response, let's worship. Let's thank God for who he is. Let's worship God for what he's done. Let's consider how great he is and how small we are. And then let's bring those very real things to him. And we're going to end our gathering in a few minutes with the bread and the cup. I want to give thanks for God sending his son Jesus because in Jesus, he can make all things new. So tonight, let's respond and ask God for his favor. Let's pray.